Good morning. Whether you're joining us over the live stream or here in person, I welcome each of you to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to a free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I want to especially welcome our guest preacher this morning, Reverend John Burens, and our extraordinary lay leader, Susan Thompson, who is joining us this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you on the live stream to greet one another in the comments and those of you here in person to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. Please join me in the words for lighting our chalice. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. Our call to worship this morning is a responsive reading written by Reverend Chris. Now let us worship together. Now let us celebrate the sacred miracle of each other. Now let us open our hearts, our souls, our lives to blessings both mysterious and transcendent. Now let us be thankful for the healing power of love, the gift of fellowship, the renewal of faith. Now let us accept with gratitude the traditions handed down to us from those that came before and open ourselves to begin anew for those that will follow. Now let us worship together. This congregation has a mission that we came to with each other. It guides all of our decisions. It guides our ministries. And we love it so much we put it on our wall and we say it together every Sunday. Let's do so now. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Each week, we have a moment for beloved community to explore further what we mean by that term and our mission. Today, I want to share with you the history of Franklin, who is the African-American child in the Peanuts series. The year was 1968. Rev. Dr. Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. A schoolteacher named Harriet Glickman wrote to Charles Schultz about adding an African-American character to his Peanuts cartoon because she, her children in her classroom weren't seeing each other in the newspaper in cartoons. Schultz was initially reluctant. He was afraid it would be condescending because he grew up in an all-white school, so he was a little afraid to do that himself. But Glickman would not give up. She had some of her African-American friends write to Schultz also. On July 31st, 1968, Schultz published his first cartoon. Do we have the slide for that? There it is. 
This would eventually lead to a conversation between Schultz and the president of the comics distribution company, who was concerned that introducing Franklin would affect Schultz's popularity. Many newspapers during that time had threatened to cut the strip because of it. Schultz remembers responding, I remember telling Larry at the time about Franklin. He wanted me to change it, and we talked about it for a long while on the phone, and I finally sighed and said, well, Larry, let's put it this way. Either you print it just the way I draw it, or I quit. How's that? Needless to say, Franklin became part of the cartoon. I think the real heroes of that story, though, are Glickman and her friends who wrote to Schultz and got him to build the beloved community by including Franklin in his cartoon. Good morning. I'm Kelly Stokes. I'm the director of Lifespan Religious Education here. And today, instead of a story, we're going to do something we haven't done in person since 2019, and that is the blessing of the backpacks. And since we haven't done it in so long, I think a lot of us who are going to be receiving the blessing have forgotten what this is. So I'm going to invite everyone who is starting school soon, whether you're starting daycare for the first time or maybe preschool or high school, if you're a teacher or professor or anyone who just wants to get the blessing, I invite you to come up and join me up here. Bring your backpacks if you have them. If you don't, bring your invisible backpacks. Come on up. We're going to throw, throw invisible things, but they're going to be important things nonetheless. So all of these people up here are starting school soon, and they need to take some things in their backpacks with them. They need to take some things to school from their church community. So everyone up here, open up your backpack, or just hold it up. If you have an imaginary backpack, you can hold up your imaginary backpack. And I'm going to ask everyone out here, let's give some things to all these curious, interested, learning students up here that they can take with them to school. So I'm going to, let's see, what do you need when you're going to school? How about curiosity? Curiosity is something Unitarian Universalists know about, right? So let's find some. I think I've got some here and maybe some over here. And I'm going to ball it up and I'm going to throw it into their backpacks. Can you all do that with me? Let's throw some curiosity. Did y'all catch it? Did you catch the curiosity in your backpack? Yes. What else do we need? What if we're starting a new school? What if we're going to school for the first time? What if we're starting homeschool for the first time? Or we've been homeschool for a few years and we need to come back to in-person school. Maybe some courage. Could we gather up some courage and ball it up, please, everybody? And I want to see a really good throw this time. Ready? Throw that courage. Yes. Did you catch it? Yes. How about love? Can we offer all of these students so much love as they start their new school year? Let's gather it up. Find all the love you've got. All the love you can share. (laughs) And let's throw it. Yay. Did you catch it? Is there anything else we need? What do you all need? Is there anything else you need for starting school besides money? (laughs) Yes. How about some kindness? Can we gather up some kindness? This group has a lot of kindness in it already, so I'm going to ask you to gather up yours, and we're going to share it with each other this time. You guys get to throw, too. Ready? Gather up all your kindness. Ready? Throw! Yes! All right. So today, when we go back to our RE class, we're going to be making these luggage tags. 
they're, um, they're going to go on their backpacks. It's a backpack tag, and it says, Be loved, be kind, be you. Mm. And we're going to offer a blessing to all of these learners. We have a slide, I think, that's going to help us give this blessing. And I'm going to say the first line, and then I'm going to ask all of you to repeat the second line that's in italics. Can you read it? Okay. Be loved. Be kind. Be you. Blessings on your learning, blessings on your backpacks. The first reading for Centering comes from our guest preacher, Reverend John Burens. He writes, Everything is in process. Even the seemingly solid bedrock of earth has gone through enormous changes since it was star stuff, then magma. Nor is reality quite as the ancients saw it, changing combinations of earth, fire, water, and air, or spirit. Nor is it made up chiefly of mass and space, as in Newtonian physics. What seems to us to be things are just packets of energy, related for a time. They are events, actual occasions. So are we. Darwin, Einstein, and quantum mechanics all confirm this view of a universe in constant process. The philosophy needed for our time is a process philosophy. If we dare to address or name ultimate reality, the theology we need is a process theology. To which I add a reading borrowed from Howard Zinn whose People's History of the United States I cited in the subtitle of a little book I wrote on our, our own religious movement, Universalists and Unitarians in America, A People's History. By the way, my latest book, which is about the transcendentalists, our forebearers as social activists, is available as an audio book narrated by John Zinn, Howard's son. Howard said, everything in history, once it has happened, looks as if it had to happen exactly that way. We can't imagine any other. But I'm convinced of the uncertainty of history, of the possibility of surprise, of the importance of human action in changing what looks unchangeable. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, of sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives and our moment in history. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something positive. If we remember those times and places, and there were so many, 
where people behaved magnificently. This gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act, in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now, as we think human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. Here end our readings. This is the time in our service where we center ourselves together. We breathe together. And breathing together, we sense one another's loving presence even through virtual space. Breathing in, breathing out. We follow our breath to a deeper place inside, a place of greater wisdom, a place where that spark of the divine resides within each of us. Breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence together. Remembering that in this congregation, the sounds of small children and human sounds are a part of that sacred silence. Breathing in, breathing out, we now enter into that time of silence together. I invite you now to light candles representing joys, sorrows, remembrances, hopes.
May the meditations of our hearts and the words of our mouths and the silence of our prayers be acceptable and help to ignite goodwill and good energy deep within and among us all. It's very good for me to be here again. This is my 50th year as a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I have a vivid memory of being in this very space midway in that journey. Being honored by the presence in the front row of your late illustrious member, Professor Charles Hartshorn, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Texas. I'd been here earlier in the 1980s when I was senior minister at our church in Dallas. But to have Hartshorn there, the leading interpreter of process philosophy and theology, was truly touching to me. In no small part because Charles had just lost his beloved companion in life, his wife Dorothy. And because he was the quintessential absent-minded professor, he had lost the real pillar of his ability to accomplish things in the world. So I went to see him at his home that afternoon. But when I raised the issue of grief... He amazed me by talking about how he had been a hospital corpsman during World War I and about learning to accept what he could not change and trying to change what he still could affect, the essence of spiritual wisdom. What a mensch. <laughs> he died at 103. He also spoke about what he was reading in little breaks in the trenches in Flanders amid the carnage around him. Wordsworth, Shelley, the transcendentalists, English poets and American who anchored their hope in reverence for nature and its ongoing processes and in that longer arc of human history that, as Dr. King pointed out, we have to continue to try to bend toward justice. Hartshorn's process thought in books like The Divine Relativity, Reality as Social Process, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes, <laughs> deeply influenced my own theology and thinking. Yet, he considered himself as much a scientist as a philosopher and indeed published more scientific papers than philosophical ones, particularly in ornithology, where his magnum opus was called Born to Sing, trying to show that not all birdsong can be accounted for as simply trying to establish feeding territory or find a mate, some of it, especially the dawn chorus that greets every morning, 
is simply about the joy of being alive, which itself probably contributes to survival. Think about that as spiritual insight. George Santayana, another philosopher with Unitarian ties, said as much in his book, Skepticism and Animal Faith, which reminds me always of a story my friend Ken McLean, an older colleague, tells about a congregant who once asked him what he thought Unitarian Universalists really had most in common. And Ken answered, well, you know, we're inclined to be skeptical. To which the man said, I don't believe that for a minute. (laughs) So when I stand here daring to preach to you in a time of leadership transition in your own congregation and asking you to, quote, trust the process, a process that emerges from the experience of the wider family of faith to which you belong, I don't expect you to suspend all of your skepticism. I think that the creative mystery or process behind our shared existence offers that shared awe or reverence which I heard fall over this room with the first solo of the morning. Yet some Human processes, of course, seem almost designed to stand in the way of creativity or progress. They are not all creative. I think of the many undemocratic processes that have been built into our own American democracy, like the privileging of small states in the Senate over large states and the filibuster and the gerrymandering and the laws aimed at voter suppression, and I could go on as could you. These are bad and dangerous times that require our faithfulness in loyalty to the democratic process, among other things. Every group or tribe, the anthropologist will tell us, develops its own peculiar fetishes and faith. For Americans, and liberals in particular, I think, and you use, therefore, process can become a bit of both. When I was UUA president, I sometimes impatiently quipped as we voted to tweak our bylaws for the nth time. (laughs) Process seems to threaten to become our most important product. We debated resolutions over matters on which, while we wanted to voice our collective conscience, we actually had to accept that we had only limited control. One year, I think it was around the time that I was last year in Austin, say 25 years ago, our General Assembly met in Indianapolis, and I even deliberately interrupted the democratic process because I had, as a spiritual leader, I thought an obligation to point to what was urgent and important. The debate on the floor of the assembly was which of several issues that had emerged, not through the congregational poll, but as resolutions of immediate witness, should be admitted to the floor and then perhaps passed by the assembly. Well, one was an issue on which I felt we were almost uniquely qualified and called to lead, namely opening civil marriage 
to same-sex couples. Why, we've been doing it with spiritual blessings in our midst for a whole generation. We'd embraced same-sex couples as leaders of our congregations and delegates to our General Assembly. But this involved, of course, going into the public square and advocating for a new civil right. Madam Moderator, I said to my dear friend, Denny Davidoff, who was presiding, may I rise to a point of personal privilege? And when she recognized me, I invited everyone present who was involved in a same-sex union to join me up on the chancel, sort of like the kids and the educators did with their backpacks, so that the delegates could see them, whether their partner was there or not. Now, my wife Gwen and I have been married since just before I was ordained, 50 years. Yet I wanted people to realize that we were being called to be straight allies, among other things, in a struggle for real human dignity. Predictably, somebody uh, objected that I had abused the process, (laughs) as set out in Robert's Rules of Order. Yep, probably so yet without the vision, the people perish, which is why we call people to leadership in our democratic movement. At a later General Assembly, I even said this, I know, I know some of you are impatient that we aren't growing faster as a denomination and in our congregations. You think, like Thomas Jefferson, that every intelligent person in America should perhaps consider becoming a UU. But think of it this way. Here in the age of the therapeutic, we have become the world's longest, lasting, oldest, most widely dispersed therapy program for people with authority issues that the world has ever seen. And like you, they laughed in self-recognition. As I've learned in mentoring younger colleagues in ministry. Authority is about claiming your own. own Your own depths of being, your own power in the world. Once I even interrupted myself during my president's report to the assembly to have the lights brought down in the delegates watch an ad from the Super Bowl that year, which showed a bunch of Texas cowboys herding cats across a river and then gathered around their evening campfire. And their leader then pulls out a lint roller and starts taking the cat hair off his cowboy outfit and says, yep, this herding cats ain't easy work, but I wouldn't do no other. (laughs) When the lights came up, I held up the lint roller and said that I would be presenting it to my successor as a badge of office for the UUA presidency, along with my hallowed tin cup. Bear that in mind, because we elect a new UU president next year. May we be merciful to him or her or they. While I'm here, I want to claim a little credit for encouraging your last senior minister, my dear friend Meg, who is in my heart and in my prayers, as I know she's in yours this morning 
to come here to Austin a dozen years ago. As I said to the voice of Radio Free Bubba, Meg, honey, Austin, that place got your name on it. (laughs) Over the last two years, as this pandemic has had our whole culture reeling, the damage that's been done to congregational life can't be minimized. We are emerging from that time now with a charge upon us to reconnect. One of my charges to you this morning is that in this time of transition, you work with your ordained ministers, whom will be introduced a moment later, and regard each one of you as having a ministry to help reconnect the scattered, deepen the devotion to this place and its mission. It cannot all be done by people that you raise money to support and pay. It involves you. And perhaps the most moving thing to me in visiting you this weekend has been hearing from your leaders and your past leaders and some of the most devoted people in this congregation that you want to be asked to do more ministry. You'll be held to that. You'll be invited. But I also charge you to be invitational to the people who don't even know of us yet. In a city like this, There are lots of lonely liberals (laughs) who are looking for spiritual support and connection and hope and perseverance. The survival of progressive religion in America Reminds me of how Darwin once said that in evolution, it's not the strongest species that survives. Not the most widespread. Not even the most intelligent. It is the one that is most responsive to change. Your adaptability in this leadership transition and in this emergence from pandemic will be critical to the influence of progressive ideas and spirit in this town and far beyond. Tomorrow morning, or in the coming week, those of you who are parents are going to be entrusting your children to teachers and schools again, trusting the process. It's a good thing. You've already trusted your board of trustees to bring together a team of ministers to serve you during a two-year transition, which may seem long, but believe me, the experience of the wider family of faith is that it must not be foreshortened, lest your ultimate spiritual leader in this pulpit not have the full endorsement of your hearts and your spirits. What I have learned about your leadership is that they are deeply committed to the mission of this church and to service of all of you. And so the final wisdom I would leave you with, really, is please, please do trust them. 
If you have concerns, voice them directly. I'm their consultant on process matters in this period, and I don't have rigid recommendations. The skepticism is still welcome. But the trust, as in all matters religious, is essential. You'll be working with a team of three people in an interim ministry, all dedicated to bringing out the very best in the congregation, in your souls, and in its influence in the wider world. In this atmosphere of regrettable politics, polarization, and what I can only call bastardized forms of religion that are terribly infected with atomistic individualism, which is the virus carried in American culture all too often. Bringing forth things like prosperity gospel, which would make Jesus cringe. Blaming the poor. Christian nationalism. Which is nothing but a form of collective narcissism. Or political leaders that actually manifest the worst narcissistic tendencies of our time. Believe me, the experience of our congregations is that steady perseverance in good practice is far preferable to impulsive decision-making. That is part of trusting that we are embraced by a love that we never fully understand. We see some of its aspects. We manifest it only in part. We continue to grow in our capacity for really loving the beloved community into being, for being what we want to see. We're not there yet. Let's admit that we are all still in process. For trusting ourselves and our future growth and our fellow human beings in their process of growth is an existential and philosophical and theological imperative. Trust does have its limits, of course. I think of all those Texas stores that had behind the cash register, in God we trust, all others pay cash. Or even Winston Churchill saying, democracy is the worst of all systems of government except for all the others that have been tried. (laughs) And I embrace these things within a larger natural evolutionary process of which I think it is better that we acknowledge ourselves as the beneficiaries in gratitude and awe than, say, whining participants who think that if we had been consulted at the creation, we'd have designed things better. (laughs) Let's give thanks for the creative process we are in and that we are. For if we are honest, we are not as yet the people we would hope to be. 
nor have we yet contributed that creative resistance and that creative contribution that we can give to the world around us. Supported by fallible human beings like those you see in this room and who are beyond us yet in the virtual connections of this congregation, may we in the ongoing struggle that is also imperfect do precisely that. Nourish souls. Transform lives. And serve justice to build the beloved community. Peace be with you. Please join me in the words for extinguishing our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. And now in our going, may all that is holy, all that is sacred, all that is loving, compassionate, and justice-seeking, all that builds true and beloved community, go with us, shine out from within us, grant us peace, and make us the creative energies we were meant to be. Amen. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.